you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. As Sarah said earlier, my name is Kayla, and I serve as the fellow at our offerings community. And just want to say how grateful I am to be with you all this morning. I love any opportunity that I get to visit the different campuses, but it's just a a special blessing to get to be here with you all, getting to talk with you guys this morning. So would you pray with me before we begin? Holy God, Open up our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that as we are gathered here and hear a word from you, we might hear with joy what you have to say to us this day. Amen. So when we think about people coming to faith in Jesus, one of the most well-known and certainly one of the most dramatic stories that we find in Scripture is of Saul becoming Paul when he encounters the Lord in in that white light on the road to Damascus and becomes what he had previously been persecuting, a Christian. Or we might think of John Newton, the former slave, slave owner who later went on to support the abolitionist movement, who became a Christian in the midst of this tumultuous storm when the Lord saved him and brought his ship to shore. And we might um, recognize him as the one who wrote our beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. Or maybe we think of St. Augustine, who upon hearing those words, take up and read, knowing it to be the voice of the Lord turned and followed him. But it isn't always that dramatic, right? In the Christian tradition I grew up in, it was common to make a public profession of faith when you had a conversion experience. Um, and that's, that's when you would get baptized and not as an infant, though I am quite partial to our infant baptisms. And so I had made this conversion experience and this profession of faith when I was eight years old. So, you know, I wasn't exactly like a hardened criminal before coming to faith in Jesus. Although if you talk to my two older brothers, they might have a slightly different perspective on that. (laughs) So, of course, it isn't necessary to have this sort of dramatic before and after coming to faith in Jesus story. And in fact, that's how it is for many of us. You know, we just are raised in the church, and we can't always point to that moment of coming to Jesus. But even if we don't realize it, even if we can't point to that moment of conversion, what happens within us, what God does on behalf of us, it is a radical and dramatic change. So this morning in our sermon series, um, is the Echo Catechism is the fruits and extent of salvation. So essentially we're going to talk about what it is that happens in and after coming to faith in Christ before and after our own conversions, no matter what that looks like for each of us as individuals. 
So if you surveyed various churches around the world and asked, what does it mean to be saved? One popular response from some Christian circles might sound something like this. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the penalty for our sins is eternal death and separation from God. But God in Christ stepped in and sacrificed himself, taking on the punishment for our sins so that we might be made right with God and have eternal life. And this is, of course, absolutely true and right and good. But it's only a piece of the puzzle. It's only a fragment of the full picture of the extent of salvation. And so this um, common description of salvation that I just named for us is what we would call justification. And it is one aspect, aspect of our doctrine of salvation. Justification describes the moment that we come to faith and God forgives us our sins and declares us righteous before God because of Christ. And sometimes we hear the language of being born again and it tends to be used interchangeably with justification. Being born again, being a born again believer means that you are justified or saved by grace through faith. But we actually understand justification and being born again, or regeneration, if you want to feel fancy with it. So we understand them as two separate events, although they do happen simultaneously in our order of salvation. And naming the differences between the two, between regeneration and justification, it isn't just something that only scholars and seminarians care about, right? It's actually really helpful for us to understand the two separately, to look at them individually, and to know the differences, because it helps give us a fuller picture of the gift of our salvation. And so John, John Wesley writes about the difference in his sermon, titled, The Great Privilege of Those Who Are Born of God. He says this, God, in justifying us, does something for us. In begetting us again, he does the work in us. The former changes our outward relation to God so that of enemies we become children. By the latter, our inmost souls are changed so that of sinners we become saints. The one restores us to the favor, the other to the image of God. The one is the taking away the guilt the other, the taking away the power of sin. The fact that God forgives our sins, that he casts them as far as the east is from the west, that he stepped in and took the punishment of our sins upon him. It's just such an incredible truth, isn't it? But what took me so much longer to understand was that not only does Christ take away the punishment of our sins, but he breaks the power of canceled sin, as the hymn by, John, by Charles Wesley says. Christ breaks sin's power over us and enables us to live holy and free lives. So in our text for this morning, 1 John chapter 3, the disciple writes that Christ came to take away our sins, not just the effects or the punishment or the guilt of our sins, and to destroy the works of the devil. So when we come to faith in God, it isn't just our state in relation to God that has changed. It isn't that God just plucks us up from the 
you know, guilty category and drops us down in the justified category, and that's the only thing that changes. God transforms our inner lives, and we receive a new nature as children of God, and we receive Christ's power to resist temptation to sin. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we are automatically made perfect and we will never sin again, but it does mean that we are no longer powerless against sin. Dr. Ken Collins, um, he's a theologian who teaches at the seminary. He likes to say that sin may remain, but it does not reign. When I was growing up, I don't know if this was something that someone ever told me directly or how exactly it is that I came across this idea. But I had the distinct impression that sin, the power of sin in our lives, in my life, was just too powerful. That, you know, Christ has forgiven me of my sin and, you know, one day I'm going to meet him and be perfect. But until then, I'm kind of just doomed to repeat these patterns of sin, right? To sin and repent and try again, but really just kind of fail at it over and over until Christ returns or until I meet him. And I'm so glad that somewhere along the way, someone corrected that idea for me. Because what a small view of Christ's power, that he could save us from the punishment of sin, but couldn't free us from its grip. This is one of the privileges that John Wesley names for those who are born again, the privilege that we have because Jesus has broken the power of sin in our lives. And there's another privilege that Wesley names, and that's relational awareness of God. Before we come to faith, we have no real access or awareness of God. Although he's all around us, we can't see or hear or feel him. We are like those with eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear. After coming to Christ, though, we have this particular gift of knowing and being aware of God. And Wesley describes this relational awareness really beautifully. Um, and we'll try to forgive him for his lack of gender-inclusive language, but just know that this is for men and women, certainly. But Wesley writes that when a person is born again, his ears are now opened and the voice of God no longer calls in vain. He hears and obeys the heavenly calling. He knows the voice of his shepherd. All his spiritual senses being now awakened, he has a clear intercourse with the invisible world. And hence he knows more and more of the things which before it could not enter into his heart to conceive. He now knows what the peace of God is, what is joy in the Holy Ghost, what the love of God which is shed abroad in the heart of them that believe in him through Christ Jesus. Thus the veil being removed, which before interrupted the light and voice, the knowledge and the love of God. He who is born of the Spirit, dwelling in love, dwelleth in God, and God in him. So for Wesley, it's like cotton has been suddenly removed from our ears and a blindfold from our eyes, and now finally our spiritual senses are awake to the presence of God and we get to interact with him as the relational being that he is. 
this change for us of being born again, it's not just an outward change where we start living by a certain set of rules. We are born into a completely new life. Just as the baby in the womb can hardly hear, her eyes are closed and she cannot touch and feel the world that is mere inches away on the outside of the womb. Before we are born again, we are not aware of God, though he is closer to us than the skin on our bones or the air within our lungs. But when God gifts us new birth, when we're born again, we are plunged into a world where spiritual reality is reality. We're made aware of God who is with us all along. We can feel his presence. We can interact with him and sense his peace and just go about our lives in relationship with him. Once we are awakened to God's presence, every ordinary moment can be transformed. We become aware that every moment is a holy moment infused with God's presence. So we're not just going for a walk or folding laundry or working on spreadsheets or wrangling grandchildren or whatever it is. We're communing with God. So when we're born again and made children of God, we're given the ability to resist temptation, we're given new life, and we're gifted with this awareness of God. Right? But even all of this is just the beginning of salvation. At our moment of faith, we are justified and born again in that very moment. And yet, although we have this new life, most of us still have sin in our lives, right? Except in those few rare instances where we hear of people being instantaneously delivered from sin, but that's a sermon for a different day. I'll let Chad handle that one for y'all. But what we've been talking about so far has been what occurs on behalf of us and within us at the moment that we come to faith in Jesus. And this marks for us, this moment marks for us what will hopefully be the beginning of a lifelong journey of growing in our faith and in our relationship with Jesus. And we see this reflected in our text today as well. 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God. The disciple is writing to these churches and telling them who they are right now, their identity. They are God's children already. They have been born again. They have been grafted into this new family and changed from the inside out. They have this relational awareness of God now and all the things that come with being born again. They are children of God. And yet, John says, it has not yet been revealed what we will be. In other words, you've come to faith. But this is just the beginning there's still something that has to be done here. You're not yet what God has made you to be. You're not yet um, fully restored to the image of God that he created you for. You have to grow and be transformed and renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit more and more into holy and loving people. And we know this process of growing in holiness and in love as sanctification. 
According to the late author Jerry Bridges, sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, whereby our inner being is progressively changed, freeing us more and more from sinful traits and developing within us over time the virtues of Christ-like character. And I like this quote because it emphasizes for us that sanctification rests on divine action. It's good for us to remember that sanctification is the work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives, that we don't have the power to change ourselves. But that doesn't mean that we play an entirely passive role in our sanctification. So this summer I've been uh, taking a course um, called Gospel Catechesis. And in class, we've spent a lot of time talking about discipleship. And so something that we've learned is about how our usual methods of teaching, they don't, they don't always translate well to a life of discipleship, right? I mean, how many of us have had the experience of hearing a sermon or reading a new book and feeling so inspired, and then we go home and try to make that change in our lives, and it, something doesn't quite translate, Right? So we think about learning as a transfer of accurate and important information into our minds. But discipleship requires that we would not just learn different ideas, but that we would become different people, that we would be holy and sanctified. And somehow, try as we might, we can't think our way into sanctification. So what is it that we do then? How do we get beyond just information and do the work that is ours to do to help ourselves and to help one another grow in holiness and love to continue being renewed into the image of God? Let's look again at 1 John. In chapter 3, verse 2, John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, when Christ is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. When Christ is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. So the, so the disciple John, he's drawing this connection between seeing Jesus and becoming like him. And although we can't physically see Jesus until he does return, I wonder how we might try to see Jesus a little more clearly, even now, even today. I've become um, convinced after reading a book titled This Here Flesh um, by Cole Arthur Riley that the window into truly seeing is to practice awe, to exercise our wonder and our astonishment at God. Awe, Riley writes, is the practice of beholding the beautiful. She goes on to say, Awe is not a lens through which to see the world, but is our sole path to seeing. Any other lens is not a lens, but a veil. I've come to believe that our beholding, seeing the veils of the world peeled back again and again, if only for a moment, 
is no small form of salvation. So if we become more like Jesus when we see him, and to truly see is to be astonished, then perhaps a way into sanctification is to practice regularly gazing on the beauty of the person of Jesus. Discipleship is not just about looking down at ourselves and all the ways that we desire to change. It is that, but it's not just that. It is also looking up, fixing our gaze on Jesus and beholding his beauty that stirs our affections for him. When we see the God who left the comfort of heaven just to be with us, to share in our pain and our suffering, to bring us joy. Jesus who loved, genuinely loved those who cursed and killed him. Jesus who knelt down in the dirt and did not cast a stone. Jesus who lifts the lowly who speaks gently. Jesus who loves us with an everlasting love, one deeper and purer and truer than any that we could imagine here on earth, a love that changes things, that began a movement that has changed the world for 2,000 plus years, a love that changes us, that transforms us from the inside out and gives us the capacity to love. Although we can't even now fully see Jesus for who he is, we see dimly now as through a veil. When we fix our attention on Jesus and behold his beauty, we cannot help but be drawn to him. Our affections cannot help but be stirred for who he is. When we behold Jesus, we are helped to love him more and to love the people who he loves. As Cole Arthur Riley says, when we wonder, we loosen the cords that restrain our loves. And finally, love is the beginning and the end of salvation. And love happens to be the beginning and the end of our passage today. We begin in verse 1 with, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. And we close with verses 10 and 11 that all who are born of God love their brother and sister. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. As we begin to see Christ more clearly, as we, we become more transformed into his image and we more take on the mind of Christ, we begin to see people the way that Christ sees them. We strive to love as Christ loves, to be patient as Christ is patient, to be found among the lost and the broken where Christ is, to love those who hate us and bless those who curse us, to seek justice and love mercy. It is for love that God has drawn us to himself and continues to draw us to himself over and over again. It's for love that God forgives us our sins when we repent and declares us righteous before God. 
It's for love that he gives us a new life and an awareness of his presence with us. And it is for love that he continues to renew us day by day as we walk with him by the power of his Holy Spirit. And God's love then enables us to respond. We love because Christ first loved us, because we now have the capacity to love. A capacity that we would not have if God had not loved us first. God has loved us, and he's made us his children. And he asks that we might in turn love him with all of who we are. Body, mind, soul, strength that we might love our brother and sister, all the while looking to Jesus and waiting for the day that the veil will fall away and we will be like him because we will see him face to face. May it be so. Amen. Me. God of all goodness and grace, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you that we have relationship with you. We thank you that you have freed us from the grip of sin in our lives. That you have freed us to live holy and joyful and freely. And we ask Jesus for more of your grace. More of your grace to see who you are, to see the beauty of who you are more truly that as we see your face and are captured by your beauty, we might come to love you more and be more and more transformed by that love. Pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.